0: Chapter One, Part Two of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. Chapter One, Part Two. Shakespearean Theatres. But, what they wanted in scenery, they made up in noise and bustle and discharge of small cannon, flourishes of trumpets, beating of drums, the clash of swords, rapiers, and cutlasses, loud shouts, ringing of bells, and the like kept things very lively. The only machinery employed consisted of the balcony and traverses referred to of trapdoors and of some sort of pulleys for managing the descents of deities, angels, and saints. So in Green's Alphonsus, let Venus be let down from the top of the stage, and in another play, fortune descends down from heaven. But this machinery could not, it seems, be depended upon for getting them up again. So Green about his Venus, exit Venus, or if you can conveniently let a chair come down from the top of the stage and draw her up. As on the Greek stage, the dresses were sometimes very gorgeous and expensive thus among henslow's items we find a dress gown of cloth of gold a damask cossack guarded with velvet white satin laid thick with gold lace a pair of round pansies hoss of cloth of silver the panes laid with gold lace and among his items is a very curious one for which even mr maskely would no doubt like to have the receipt a robe for to go invisible but to return to the structure of the theatre there were two doors for one of the actors leading to the tiring rooms, the other for the public leading into the ground or yard. This, as I said before, answered to our pit, and in the private theaters, such as the Black Friars, was actually called the pit. But in the public theaters, either the yard or ground. This, with the upper gallery, was the cheapest part of the theater, and a penny or twopence admitted you to this there were no seats unless you chose to hire a stool and the spectators either stood sat or sprawled on the floor which was when clean strewn with rushes but very shortly after the arrival of the audience it must have been as filthy and unsavoury as a pigsty. on the horrors of that floor i shall not dilate if you did not wish to sit down in a mash of broken meat and bread of half-picked bones and half-munched apples nut husks and tobacco ashes you could hire for sixpence a stool but on the whole you would do well to make your way to the galleries where you could get a seat at the same price if you did not mind the reek steaming up from the ground and the groundlings these galleries or stories stretched in a semicircle behind and on each side of the stage and were about twelve feet and a half in breadth, the lower about twelve feet in height, the second about eleven, and the third about nine. The price of admission to the highest of these galleries was twopence, and it was called the twopenny gallery, but you might get in sometimes for a penny. Admission to the other galleries was sixpence to the left and the right of the stage, under the galleries were the rooms, answering to our boxes and admission to these was in shakespeare's time one shilling to the balcony or upper stage were attached also two rooms which were called private where visitors of distinction who did not wish to be seen could be accommodated but being as decker says almost smothered in darkness they were not generally sought and could be got cheap but if being a man of mode you wished to pose and be conspicuous The thing to do was to get a seat on the stage, where you could, if you were minded, gracefully sprawl, or, what would be more comfortable, hire a three-legged stool to sit upon. This would only cost you a shilling, and the shilling would include the right to your page to come and light your pipe for you. Now let us suppose that we are going to make an afternoon of it at the theatre when Shakespeare was in his glory at the Globe it is about a quarter to three in the afternoon we are on one of the stairs opposite st paul's hailing a waterman there over in the surrey side the flags are already waving from the little wooden turrets of the globe the rose and the swan towering over and in gay contrast with the green trees behind and around we embark the river is alive with boats and wherries making their way to the stairs on the bank side and the scholars are doing a roaring trade especially our old friend john taylor whose boat is half sunk with its freight of passengers knavishly laden as one wherryman man has just observed with more than a twinge of jealousy after being very nearly run down by a sailing vessel and very nearly colliding with two returning boats the oaths and ribaldry interchanged at these junctures have been something frightful we disembark at the bear garden stairs just opposite the right of the globe this glory of the bank and fort of the parish as ben jonson calls it is not an imposing building with its shabby thatched fringe on the roof and small apertures which pierce and dot its dingy wooden sides of the entertainment which is awaiting us we can be in no doubt for there it is in staring red letters on several placards two of which are plastered on the theatre and one on a tree and one on a wall it is also being bawled out by vociferous posts presumably for the benefit of those who cannot read a most pleasant excellent and conceited comedy of sir john falstaff and the merry wives of windsor intermixed with sundry variable and pleasing humours of sir hugh the welsh knight justice shallow and his wise cousin mr slender with the swaggering vein of ancient pistol and corporal nim, as it hath been diverse times acted by the right honourable my lord chamberlain's servants both before her majesty and elsewhere we must make haste for it has gone three and the trumpet has sounded twice and in a minute or two the third blast will blare out and the curtain will be drawn there are two doors one leading into the yard and one to the tiring house and the stage we take the latter that we may get a stool on the stage this we arrange without difficulty seat ourselves comfortably and look about us the first thing that strikes us on surveying the audience is that there is no lady to be seen no woman with any pretension to refinement unless the two sitting in the rooms with masks on be such some of the prentices have bought their sweethearts and a few plainly belong to the humbler citizens their wives flaunting and impudent harridans. there are in abundance in fact our neighbour on the stage who has just crept from behind the arras with his three-footed stool in one hand and with the sixpence to pay for it daintily mounted between his forefinger and thumb in the other has already begun to bandy questionable compliments with one of them in the first gallery. A glance round will show that a more motley and mixed assembly could hardly have come together. In the upper gallery and in the yard, the majority consists of the very scum and rinsings of humanity, ignorant, brutal, and filthy, and side by side with them a few, not many respectable and quiet-looking citizens. But the most numerous class are roistering princesses, on the stage and in the rooms are fashionable dandies, swashbucklers and young bloods, as they are called, writers for the theatres and actors. These had always a free pass. The theatre is full. The occupations of those assembled are as various as their callings and characters. Some of them are noisily playing cards or dice. Some are smoking, women as well as men. Others are munching apples, discussing a herring pie, uncorking beer bottles, or cracking nuts. Some are reading books. Some are preparing their tables to take notes of the play that they may get by heart the passages which please them or retail in ridicule among the taverns those that do not. Among these is one man on whom the actors will keep an eye. He is a noted literary pirate who, if he can will take down the play, or as much as he can manage, in shorthand, and so cheat the company out of the copyright. In one corner of the yard, two men are fighting, the bystanders cheering them on. In another, there is a very lively altercation between a defrauded waterman and his escaped freight. The third trumpet sounds. There's a sudden hush in this babble. The curtain is drawn, and the play begins an actor in a long black velvet cloak threads his way among those who are sprawling or sitting on the stage and delivers the prologue while the play is being acted the audience are tolerably quiet but the din between the acts is deafening for while trumpets recorders hotboys lutes and fiddles most or some are in full blast the people in the yard are bawling up to those in the galleries and those in the galleries are bawling down to those in the yard there is no reticence no restraint the play is freely and loudly criticised so are the actors and approbation has not been universal especially among your neighbours on the stage before the second act was over One of them had risen up from his tripod with a screwed and discontented face and had tried to induce his acquaintances by becks and gestures to annoy the actors by leaving the theater. To this they had not responded, and ever since he has been relieving his feelings by mewing at eloquent passages, shrugging his shoulders at hits and points, and whistling while the songs were being sung as loudly as he dare. There is now silence for the third act but suddenly you become aware that there is universal commotion in the yard which soon swells into uproar a pickpocket has been caught red-handed in an instant a dozen hands have seized him and he is dragged along to the proscenium and perforce stops he is hoisted over the rails on to the stage the actors assisting in the operation and bound with cords to one of the pillars which support the heavens the play then goes on and between the remaining acts, the yard and galleries make it extremely lively for him. The play has lasted rather over two hours, and on the whole, for the din and the smell are so oppressive, you are not sorry when the actors drop down on their knees to pray for the queen, and you can get away. What I have given you has been the description of a comparatively quiet afternoon, when the audience were orderly and pleased it was a very different scene when the majority of that audience were not pleased and the roughs got the bit between their teeth if they did not like a play they kept up a running commentary of vituperation and ridicule mewling yelling hissing bellowing and even pelting the actors and driving them off the stage they would force the actors to perform another play and if they did not accede to the request tear down the benches and tiles belabor and pelt the actors with them and wrecked the stage shrove tuesday was always a dreadful day but there was another class of theaters very different from these called private theaters such as the one in white friars the cockpit in drury lane and the singing school of saint paul's but the most celebrated of these and the one especially associated with shakespeare was the black friars these were enclosed buildings what was called the yard was here called the pit and it was furnished with seats the boxes or rooms were enclosed and furnished with locks to which the hirers had keys the performances were often at night and were by candle-light even when the plays were acted in the daytime the prices for admission were higher and the audiences much more select ladies being present and they were open in the winter when the public theatres were always closed. The difference between the audiences at the public and private theatres, between those assembled at the Black Friars and those at the Globe, is well illustrated in the prologue to one of Shirley's plays, The Doubtful Heir. The play was performed at the Globe, but was written for Black Friars. The prologue contemptuously addresses the audience thus, gentlemen i am only sent to say our author did not calculate his play for this meridian the bankside he knows is far more skilful at the ebbs and flows of water than of wit it was for the audiences of the private theatres of the blackfriars that shakespeare wrote it was very probable that the grosser passages of low comedy which are so common in his plays were expressly interpolated for his bankside audience at the Globe. He indemnified himself for this degradation, and so did Ben Jonson and others, by taking every opportunity of expressing his loathing and contempt for the rabble. But the question of public and private theaters is a very difficult one. It would seem that occasionally the public theaters were used as private however i must not go into this question i have not space to discuss it performances were also given at the inn's court and at the court neither queen elizabeth nor james I nor any of the upper class unless incognito ever visited a public theatre plays were given at night so as not to interfere with the day performances of the actors and now a word or two about the actors the Rosius or garrick of the shakespearean stage was james burbage he played all the great parts in shakespeare being indeed to shakespeare what Tepolemus was to sophocles and sephysiphon to euripides shylock richard the third prince henry romeo henry v brutus hamlet othello lear macbeth Coriolanus. These were especially associated with him. How completely he was identified with Richard III is very amusingly illustrated by Bishop Corbett, who tells us that his host at Leicester, when he would have said King Richard died, and called a horse a horse, he Burbage cried. Like Garrick and Robson, he was under the middle height and rather stout, and it was to adapt the part to him that Shakespeare makes the Queen of Hamlet say, He's fat and scant of breath. Flecknoe, who must have known many who saw him act, says, He was a delightful proteus, so wholly transforming himself into his part and pulling off himself with his clothes, as he never, not so much as in tiring houses, assumed himself again until the play was done. He had all the parts of an excellent orator, animating his words with speaking and speech with action. Another writer speaks of his Wondrous tongue another says of him What a wide world was in that little space, thyself a world, the globe thy fittest place, thy stature small, but every thought and mood might thereby from thy face be understood. Next to Burbage in reputation was Edward Allen, the proprietor of the fortune, and afterwards the founder of Dulwich College. But there is no evidence that he acted in Shakespeare's plays. Very celebrated also was Joseph Taylor, who played Hamlet, we are told, incomparably and no wonder if Downs is to be believed, for he was coached by no less a person than Shakespeare himself. Taylor was also great in Iago. Next comes John Lowen, whom Shakespeare especially instructed in the part of Henry the Eighth. He also acted Falstaff with special applause among the best comic actors who took the part of clowns was ebullient will kemp who danced the whole way what merry days those must have been from london to norwich he was the original dogberry but kemp had a bad habit and would insist on extemporizing in his part in carrying a clown's license into regular drama it is supposed that the provoked shakespeare was glancing at kemp when he wrote in hamlet Let those that play your choruses speak no more than is set down for them, for there be of them that will themselves laugh, to set on some quality of barren spectators to laugh too, though in the meantime some necessary question of the play be then to be considered. That's villainous and shows a most pitiful ambition in the fool that uses it. Other distinguished comic actors were Thomas Pope, who was great on rustics and peasants richard cowley who played verges robert Armin, who shone in fools and knaves and augustine phillips i need hardly remind you that in shakespeare's time the parts of women were always taken by boys or young men which continued to be the custom till charles the second's reign it is said that on one occasion the king got very impatient at the delay in the actors making their appearance and angrily demanded of the manager the reason. Beg your majesty's pardon, said the functionary, but the queen is not shaved. This led, we are told, to the introduction of queens who would not delay performances in the same manner. Among the most distinguished of those who took female parts in Shakespeare's plays were Alexander Cook, Nicholas Tooley, and William Osler. That Shakespeare must have been a consummate master of the theory of acting is evident from the famous instructions in Hamlet, but as an actor he does not seem to have been distinguished. We know that he acted in two several comedies, or interludes, before Queen Elizabeth at Greenwich, and also in Ben Jonson's Every Man in His Humor and Sejanus, as well as in his own plays, and tradition asserts that he played the ghost in Hamlet and Adam in as you like it the profession of playwright was not unlucrative the highest price known to have been paid for a play was ten pounds that is in our money one hundred pounds henslow never paid more than eight pounds the ordinary price was six pounds in our money sixty pounds ben jonson told drummond in sixteen nineteen that he had cleared only two hundred pounds that is, in our money, about 2,000 pounds, by all his plays written up to that time. With regard to the actors, it is very difficult to say what they made. They were distinguished into whole sharers, three-quarter sharers, and hired men. It is probable that the money taken at the Globe, which seems to have varied from 9 pounds to 20 pounds, was divided into 40 portions. Fifteen of these went to the proprietors, 22 to the actors, while three were retained for the purchase of new plays. But the actor's income naturally fluctuated, depending, as Collier says, upon the number of subdivisions, upon the popularity of his company, upon the stock plays belonging to it, the extent of its wardrobe, and the nature of its properties. The hired men, or inferior actors, received a regular stipend, which seems to have been from six to eight shillings a week perhaps if we put a leading actor's salary at about four hundred pounds a year we shall not be far wrong shakespeare and allen made their fortunes not by acting but by other business transactions many of which had no connection with the stage the social position of actors and playwrights in shakespeare's time was anything but an enviable one and shakespeare has spoken with great bitterness of the sense of humiliation felt by him in reference to his profession. End of chapter 1, part 2